Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to Australian Anaesthesia, a podcast about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I am chatting with Jen Dixon, an anaesthetist from Melbourne, who recently attended the Tasmanian Combined Annual Scientific Meeting. Now, this meeting has a special place in my heart because it was the last meeting I attended in 2020 before COVID. Not only was it the last face-to-face meeting of 2020, but it's also been the first scientific meeting on the Australian calendar in 2021. So well done to the organising committee. Well done in particular, because Tassie is, as you know, a small state and there's only about 130 specialist anaesthetists there. So they really punch above their weight in terms of pulling together an excellent scientific program. They also work really hard to put a meeting together that is environmentally sustainable. So with that, let's get into some highlights from the meeting. Thanks for giving up time tonight. Was it a bit exciting? Because I think this was the first face-to-face conference for the year. It was certainly exciting for me because this was the first time I'd been out of Victoria since the same session last year. Was it a bit nerve-wracking getting to the airport? Yes, um, it was a little bit through the airport knowing that this is a high-risk area. What I did was that during the pandemic when we had a little bit of mask unavailability, a friend of mine managed to source me some of the the 3M Aura masks. So I actually brought one of those, put it on. I had it on underneath a, a normal cloth mask so I didn't look too paranoid but there was a little bit of like hmm yeah we're we're sitting in a tin can here I don't know where these people have come from and what they've done so that was a little bit nerve-wracking being in Hobart and walking into just a, a general retail store without a mask on felt weird and speaking to people inside at the venue without a mask on totally weird. I'm living vicariously through you so was the plane busy was it full? There were quite a few empty seats. I think at the very start where they had lots of spacing out, it wasn't that. It was just there weren't that many people going. So they're not socially distancing on planes? No, everyone's sort of sitting next to each other. You have to wear your mask and all that kind of thing on the plane. So it doesn't matter where you're travelling, a mask in the air, and I think a mask at every airport as well. You know, if someone's eating a muffin or whatever, they're going to take the mask off. That's what doesn't make sense to me is you've still got 300 people taking off their mask and eating at the same time. And then talking with Jeanette, she was the organiser, main organiser, she said that there was going to be two different sessions. Yes. Uh, Everyone was split into two groups. That was probably the weirdest thing about it, uh, knowing that there were people that I worked with in Melbourne who'd gone down for the conference, but I just didn't see them because I'd staggered the two groups so that we wouldn't mingle at morning tea and at um, lunchtime. So that was very odd knowing that in the other lecture theatre there were people that I'd look forward to saying hi to and, and that sort of thing. There are two lecture theatres in the, the venue and there's one much larger and then one much smaller. And I was in the much smaller one and that was all socially distanced. But it did mean that the speakers had to do two talks. They had to do one to the first group and one to the second group. I'm sure that must have been a, a little bit different for them um, because then they didn't get to watch everyone else's talks. And then how did they do food and break? The food down there is always excellent. They have great catering. But, yeah, so it was just staggered um, so that we didn't interact at all. 
And presumably not the smorgasbord style anymore. No, it was all individually packaged, but Tassie being Tassie, it was a cardboard biodegradable bottom and then a recyclable top or bamboo cutlery kind of thing and then just recyclable single, you know, you didn't have a jug, you just had the single serve of juice or water. So that was a bit different too. There's good things about it as well, like everyone having to go somewhere for a conference will definitely change because we've discovered that like we're doing right now, this is actually really quite convenient. That's still the value of going and doing the face-to-face conference and being in that room and hearing someone mutter something behind you and going, yeah, that's a really good point which you don't get when you're sitting at home by yourself. How was the scientific content? The scientific content was excellent. They have always really good speakers. The content was, you know, a little bit COVID skewed, but still very good. And I think it was a fully subscribed conference, wasn't it? There was a waiting list, I think, even as well. There were certainly waiting lists on the um, the, the workshops. It, it's always a very well-attended meeting and with good reason because they managed to always get someone very interesting to speak. I totally agree. I love that meeting. It's one of my favourites. And you said it was quite COVID skewed. So what were the COVID talks? There was an excellent talk from Prof Katie Flanagan, who is an infectious diseases physician at the Launceston General Hospital. She is very in with the governmental panels that are sort of working on vaccines and and the response. And uh, she was described as having the ear of Norman Swan. And her talks were were excellent about the vaccine and about other things to do with COVID. There was some on the response to the Northwest Regional Hospital outbreak of COVID as well. That was interesting hearing what the the Tasmanian response had been. Coming back to Katie Flanagan, because I'm presuming that she'd have some input in the vaccine program and it's rolled out in Tasmania and it's creating a massive amount of distress amongst anaesthetists around Australia. Well, some are and some aren't. In Hobart, of course, they're 1As, whereas in Melbourne, I know that in many centres, people are just 1Bs. I'm very lucky because I work at the women's. We are the intubators, so I've got my date next Tuesday. Oh, congratulations. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) There was at least one Hobart anaesthetist there who was proudly, you know, rubbing his shoulder because he's already had his jab. You could be in a COVID-designated hospital in Melbourne and you'd still be in 1B. It seems horribly inequitable. I don't know, down at Werribee, we're like, when are we getting it, boss? And he's like, I don't know, even though we are the intubation team because the, the thing in our planning was that the most experienced intubator should be the intubating person and that was us. And we did lots of COVID intubations down in Werribee. So, yeah, it's kind of frustrating, really. Yeah, and Werribee was a hot spot too, wasn't it? It was, and we had lots of staff furloughed. And, yeah, I think one stage it was the region or the postcode with the most number of cases per head of population, which was fun. <laughs> Anything else? Any other COVID highlights from the meeting? Again, on Professor Flanagan's, there was some really interesting data that's come out of the real world applications of the vaccine in in Scotland. This was really interesting to hear that the published AstraZeneca efficacy, I think, was 66%. And they said that the early data coming out of Scotland is that it's it's more like 70.4. So it's actually higher, whereas the, the real world Pfizer is 85% as opposed to the published 95%. There are some phase three trials on pregnant women at the moment and the the details of those will be available in the next coming weeks. It'll be interesting to know whether they are the mRNA vaccines. I know a lot of pregnant women or women of childbearing age are very concerned about the mRNA. 
I can't see how an mRNA vaccine can change DNA because it has to be able to enter the nucleus. So I'm not sure how that is biologically possible, but I'm not a vaccine expert. Well, this was the thing that we was talking about. It. it was pregnancy and breastfeeding, no theoretical harm and no animal harm has been shown. It's new technology and you always worry about what's going to happen. But apparently, yeah, there's, there's no theoretical harm and the animal trials have all been fine. I've heard it's a reason for vaccine refusal amongst health workers. Again, that was that was said. Did you comment on whether there's much of the South African variant in Scotland or the B117 UK variant? Because I think that would also impact the real world data. She did make the point that the AstraZeneca vaccine are much easier to modify than, say, the Pfizer vax, which would have to go right back to the start. And that's interesting because what I've heard, so the Pfizer have said that they've been able to modify and be able to get something in production within three months, whereas I've heard the AstraZeneca is going to take six months to develop. But again, who knows? There's so much information. I'm not sure what's misinformation. And we're not sure at the moment whether talking about vaccines will get us into trouble with the TGA. Well, there was one slide that she put up and it says that the released phase three trials are interim results. The other thing to be aware of is the duration of protection and the rate of immunity waning. So how quickly that goes down is completely unknown. We don't know. Priority populations were underrepresented and some populations not represented at all in the trials. So that was the pregnant patients and also people with severe immunodeficiency. There's little data yet on the effects of disease transmission and that the real-world efficacy, as we said, is not the same as the clinical trials. I know in terms of the real-world data, there's a big study going on in the UK and the US. So I think a lot of people are holding judgment on the results of that Scottish data. I think the UK and the US data is due out at the end of the month, so we'll see. Professor Flanagan did make the point that the decreases in in cases hospitalised in the last couple of weeks is due to the vaccine rather than it just being, you know, more lockdowns. So that's very, very um, heartening to hear. And, yeah, the sort of severe cases is much less as well. So great. Bring it on. Great. Get jabs. Good luck with your appointment next week. I'm so jealous. And then there was a couple of other sessions, wasn't there? So there was curiosity medicine, and that was my first one. So that was Guy Ludbrook talking about ARC at the Royal Adelaide, and that was very interesting, doing the analysis and showing this. So ARC stands for Advanced Recovery Room Care, right? That's right. So it's basically 24 hours in a recovery step down. So your patient comes out goes into normal recovery and then they go into this sort of 24-hour unit where there is one to two nursing. During the day, there's an anaesthetist and um, after hours, they're, they're using residents. And they've been able to show that having this and looking at it from a purely business case point of view, it does actually show benefit. So whilst you've got more intensive nursing, you've obviously got you know a, a dedicated RMO, there is actually a cost saving to the health system. And that's going to be largely from things like reduced medical complications, reduced readmissions and reduced reoperations. So that's, you know, that's brilliant. A system that whilst it looks like it's going to be more expensive actually saves you money. And whilst we're all about great things for patients, unfortunately, it could be brilliant for patients, but if it doesn't save us any money, no one's going to be interested. And that's a systems response as well, isn't it? You can be great as an individual anaesthetist, but you need to have the systems in place to back you up on that. Was he looking at high risk or low risk patients? 
Well, this is the interesting thing. It's not just high-risk patients. It's actually your moderate-risk patients. So that's equivalent to around about ASA 3. That's patients that we see not infrequently. So with moderate-risk patients, the predicted 30-day mortality is 1% to 4%, which you sort of think, well, it's kind of getting up there. But they've been able to reduce their readmissions and their met calls this is probably where you're going to get most of your benefit is, is from this sort of moderate risk group. I suppose because you're high risk group, you're already going to be sending to ICU. And this doesn't replace ICU. If someone needs to go to ICU, they need to go to ICU. It's more that kind of in-between, you know, those patients where you're like, oh, they probably don't need ICU, but I just don't want to send them to the ward and the intensivist is your mate and you're lucky and they've got a sort of fairly easy unit. They might take them for you, but they won't normally. I think that's probably where the real benefit's going to be seen. And as populations age and we're going to see more operations on older people just because we're living longer and when you live longer, your joints wear out more and and all those sorts of things. And we're talking about also really simple interventions, not trying to belittle residents, but it's not high-level intensive care interventions, is it? It's, It's things that you can do with two to one nursing and a resident overnight. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's fluid management, pain management. Correct. Just sort of really meticulous care. It's nothing, you know, huge and new. It's just about good nursing care and good medical care. And that's fantastic that you can you can do that and actually have a demonstrable outcome. And of course, there's an increase in patient satisfaction as well. So everyone wins. As an aside, I know Guy is, is very keen to meet with CEOs who might be interested. Yes. And he did say that we need buy-in from management and we need buy-in from health funds, you can sell it as a business case because it does decrease costs overall. But yeah, you need you need a physical space, you need more staff, you need all those kinds of things as well. So you can't just, you know, have your anesthetist say, oh, well, we're going to close this end of recovery off and it's going to be our, our arc. Thankfully, he's done this and we've got a thing to hit our administrators with and say, look, this actually saves us money, saves us complications and it you know, increases satisfaction all over. And then there was another one that was on perioperative medicine. It was. Uh, it was the future of perioperative medicine uh, with David Alcock. So this was more about the college and the, the more formal qualifications coming for perioperative medicine. He made the point that our interoperative measures, they've had very limited benefit, like, you know, fluids and, you know, all these big trials, and that the whole system of perioperative medicine is something that does have demonstrable benefit. So it's looking at the, the whole process right from, gee, I think this person needs an intervention. So looking from your primary referrer, who's not always your GP, it could also be emergency, it could also be even a clinical nurse practitioner, um, say someone who's looking at wound care or whatever, uh, right through involving all the clinicians, all those disciplines, so medical, nursing, surgical, physio, rehab, and then going back to the referrer at the end of it but involving the patient, their family, their community, all in that process as well. It's definitely an emerging part of of our specialty for sure. I think we can all see it. You have to be pretty sick and having pretty major surgery to get into an anaesthetic pre-admission clinic nowadays. I remember seeing one patient who was being booked for some sort of cancer operation 
And his wife was obviously, they're rocked by this news. Yeah. And the wife said, oh, we've changed his diet completely. We're now eating completely organic food. And they said, is there anything else you can think of, doctor, that could help make an impact? I think we all see there's a gap there that needs to be filled. And it's it's so much more than just the pre-anesthetic clinic. It's it's everything else that goes before that as well. It's prehab, it's nutrition, it's all those kind of things that we need to sort of bring in. And, you know, uh, pre-op clinic has definitely got a role still, but that will be more about the mechanics of anesthesia, whereas the perioperative physician sort of role comes into it much more before that. I think there are some centres who look at much more of that sort of patient journey, but uh, we need to do it for, for so many more things. We did ask about uh, rebate for perioperative medicine and apparently the Medicare rebate is coming. It's not there yet, but it is coming because outside of a public hospital, that's a, that's a big disincentive. So the physicians are tuned into it. So there was this, a session on the difficult patient by Dr. Jennifer Long, who's a psych advanced trainee, and she was talking about pain and borderline personality disorder or insecure attachment type patients. We all know them, we've all met them, and they can present as patients who have poor engagement with us or we have poor engagement with them because they do seem very, very prickly. It's interesting in that people with borderline personality disorder, I didn't realise that, but they actually have much higher risks of all medical outcomes, so cancer and cardiovascular disease and hepatic disease and arthritis and, and all those sorts of things. So whilst you can say it's a psychological or a psychiatric diagnosis, it does have impact on lots of systems. And I've written a little note here that 30% chronic non-cancer pain with borderline personality disorders. And whilst they represent one to, I think it's 1% of the community, they're responsible for up to 5% of emergency admissions. And she was saying that a lot of it's due to sort of this insecure attachment because you've had this sort of event or you've had an upbringing where people don't learn to develop secure attachment, this is where the sort of the problem develops. I always forget, is borderline personality disorder, is that the one where if you go back far enough, there's almost always a history of childhood trauma, some sexual assault, some sort of, there's a really high correlation between the two. So did she give any tips for us as anaesthetists, meeting these people on the day, having a very short interaction with So she said that probably the main thing is empathy. And she said that anaesthetists actually do this really well because we establish a dialogue and we listen to our patients because we're so used to sort of getting in there and going, hi, how are you going? And this is your, you know, your issues. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for telling me that. I was was quite surprised because it's very much a stereotype that anaesthetists don't develop empathy and don't develop rapport, but we actually do. And she said, I've watched you in action and you're actually quite good at it. I would agree with her. People joke that we go into anesthesia because we don't like talking to people, but I think we often have a very short period of time to gain empathy, to establish trust. So keep doing that. Recognise that negative emotions are not necessarily bad emotions. Emotions are emotions. They're neither good nor bad. And saying that this is a bad emotion, that's not particularly helpful. You say you have this emotion, oh, gee, you need to sort of sit with it for a while. So things like you mentioned you felt angry or you felt frustrated when your medication was delayed or you're feeling angry, you're feeling frustrated about this pain and let them say, yeah, I do. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. 
and not saying you shouldn't be angry when your medication is delayed. It's okay. You do feel these things. Tell me about it. And sometimes that's just what you want. You just want to be heard and you want your feelings validated. She talks about having a therapeutic alliance, saying to people what's important to you and to recognise what the patient actually hopes for. So I hear you have hopes you can better gain control over your chronic pain and let's work towards that. You don't have to solve everyone's problems, but you have to say, rightio, let's do this. Let's work towards getting you better. Be consistent. Use nonverbal gestures. So you sort of lean forward and you don't write too much and you sort of sit down and you mirror their gestures and their body language. I think also just hearing people sometimes, that's all they want. They just want someone to say, look, that sounds really tough, you know, and they don't, you don't need someone to fix you. You just need someone to sit there and say, gee, that's awful. And having that sort of therapeutic alliance. There is a little bit of danger with people who have borderline that they do this thing called splitting. So you're either all good or you're all bad. If you don't maintain some sort of boundary, they're going to say, oh, that's Susie. She was brilliant. She listened to everything and she's going to cure me. Everyone else has been awful, but that's Susie. She was great. If you then sort of say, hey, 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 we've got to have boundaries, they might get again, oh, that's terrible. You're the worst ever. It is difficult to walk the line, but sometimes, yeah, people just need to be heard. Mm, Sounds like it was a good session for reflecting on some communication skills there. Absolutely. And oh, another thing that came out of that session was that one thing that's been shown to improve empathy is to read fiction. And when she first said it, I thought, hang on, did I hear that right? Can't be that easy, can it? But apparently so. Reading fiction actually improves your empathy. If we can put fiction on the CPD, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. All right. So justifiably reading fiction. I love it. Absolutely. It was an interesting session. And what else was there in that session? Uh, So we went from general pain and people with borderline to rib fractures. Lucy Burnett, who is an anaesthetist at Royal Hobart, she's a staffy and a retrieval consultant. And she was talking about analgesia for rib fractures and risk factors and what we can do about it. She was at pains to point out that with the pathology, there's sort of the insult and the injury itself. So the insult being the derangement to physiology, decreased lung and chest wall compliance and increased work of breathing and therefore increased pneumonias. But then there's the injury itself. So the the rib fractures and the pattern that they're fractured in as well, that flail is particularly bad. That's an interesting one because I sit on the Victorian State Trauma Case Review Group. And that's been a really big topic of discussion about the patient with multiple rib fractures and some other injury and whether they're classified as a major trauma and therefore should be managed or at least consulted with a major trauma centre. And increasingly, we're seeing a lot of patients with multiple rib fractures who are managed in non-trauma centre hospitals. And I think it's because of the rise of acute pain services and anaesthetists getting very good at doing blocks and pain services getting very good at managing these patients in hours and after hours. So there's some rib fracture scores like stumble and rib score, which I didn't actually know about beforehand. And that can help to guide your analgesia. And if we get referred to another patient with rib fractures, I'm probably going to use one of those scoring things. I haven't heard about them. So what were the scores? Stumble, which is S-T-U-M-B-L. And then there's rib score. So that will capture your at-risk patients, more ribs, 
older, the ribs fractured four to ten because they move more, they're more painful, whilst your, your first rib and second rib may be associated with more trauma because they're higher up, therefore protected. The lower ribs are actually much more painful because they move more. And then things like flails or whether the ribs overlap. Another thing that I didn't realise that up to 50% are missed with plain radiographs, so you really do have to CT your chest where you suspect a rib fracture. Well, that's good to know. All right. So look for a CT test if you're trying to look at rib fractures and look at these scores. If I might put them in the show notes. The, the treatment is, of course, multimodal. And that means not just multimodal medication-wise, but it's also getting on to like good physio fairly early on to try and increase your outcomes. High flow or maybe not at the moment, but escalate the care where possible. Early physio, early mobilisation, appearance incentive spirometry and tracking. It's a bit like perioperative medicine. It's not just this, it's the whole thing. Multimodal, as we know, it's going to start with paracetamol, non-steroidals where you can, you've got to look after your GFR, etc. tramadol. You can consider a gabapentinoid. And then we move to opioids, so oral versus IV, PCA versus patch. But whenever you stick someone on an opioid, you've got to have a weaning plan as well. Then add in ketamine, lignocaine, lidocaine, but it's all heading towards the regional and that's probably where we're going to see most of the newer treatments. And did you have a preference over which regional blocks? So the epidural is the most well-studied just because it's been around for the longest, but then the other modalities, there is emerging evidence. So paravertebral can be equivalent to a thoracic epidural. And then you've got your newer blocks like the serratus anterior blocks and the erector spiny blocks. There is emerging evidence that they are actually probably going to be better than an epidural because they're not as invasive and not anywhere near as tricky. And preference over serratus anterior versus erector spiny block or we're not really sure yet? The serratus anterior is basically more anterior, whereas the erector spiny is going to give you anterior, lateral and posterior analgesia. The big difference is that your serratus anterior can be done with the patient lying down, whereas your erector spiny, you've got to do them sitting or prone, just a little bit more difficult to position someone who's already in pain. So, And then finally, there was a session on rib fracture fixation from one of the cardiothoracic surgeons at the Royal Hobart, which is something that I, not working in a trauma centre, I wasn't aware of, but apparently is becoming more and more and more popular. They're a bit different to the old rib plates and they have been shown to have some good use in selected patients. So patients who have more than five fractures, who have a flail, older patients, patients who are requiring high FIO2 where there's lung contusions or where they're having trouble weaning someone off a vent. Although he did say that surgeon's role is less than 1% in rib fracture was what he said. That's the discussion we often have around the state trauma case review group is whether this patient who has rib fracture should have been managed at a major trauma centre because that's the question they would be asking is whether they are a suitable candidate for surgery. Did he talk about the appropriate timing of the surgery at all? Because I know sometimes these patients will be managed in a peripheral hospital and then there'll be some period of deterioration or a late admission to ICU. And I wonder whether they would still benefit from uh, surgical fixation later on in their course. We said ideally it's done in the first 48 hours and each day that it sort of spreads out over that increases your length of stay in hospital. So ideally it's done earlier rather than later. Obviously, we're having trouble weaning someone from ventilation, then it's going to be done later. Sounds like a great meeting. 
It was. It was really, really good. And maybe I should declare my biases because I actually won the hamper from one of the medical indemnity. Oh, congratulations for winning the hamper. That's great. Well, look, thank you. Thank you very much again for your time tonight. That was really, really good summary, some highlights from the meeting. Lovely chatting with you. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to those highlights from the meeting and thank you, Jen Dixon, for taking excellent notes and agreeing to go through them with me on this episode. I did want to make one correction and that it was Dr. Lucy Barnett, not Burnett, who gave the excellent talk on rib fracture management. I also really wanted to acknowledge the organising committee. Putting these events together involves an incredible amount of work from anaesthetists who are volunteering their time with the support from the ANSCA Regional Coordinator, Jeanette Paps. And those particular anaesthetists were convener, Shirin Jamshidi, workshop convener, Chris Wilde, chair of the Tasmanian Regional Committee, Leah Freestone, chair of the ASA Tasmanian Committee of Management, Mike Chalice, trainee conveners, Dylan Shaker and Nicola Fracalosi. Well done, all of you. So as I mentioned at the start, I was really disappointed that I couldn't attend this meeting face-to-face. I was asked to give a president's address, which I was able to record beforehand, and I'll share a link to that in the show notes. As I mentioned earlier, I will also include in the show notes the link to the Stumble and Rib Score Rib Fracture Scoring Systems. If you liked this episode and you would like to hear more, then please follow or rate this podcast so that you'll be updated when a new episode is published. And it also helps other people find it too. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, then please share them with us. We're always looking at ways to improve this podcast. All right, hope you stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>